Hey everyone, this is Martin. How are you doing today? My co-host, Thelema Dietler. How are you doing, Thelema? I'm doing well, thanks. How are you? Good. And she and I uh, did the show today with Jean Shannon in Milford, Connecticut, Shannon's Fine Art Auctions. We talked to him about his most recent sale. Uh, he told us that they have reached $5 million, which is amazing. Yeah, $5 million bucks. Wow. And pop art was very popular. He had a Liechtenstein 200 edition limited print screen print that is sell for hundred twenty thousand dollars yeah and i was asking about him like what his secrets on this and it's really interesting to hear his opinion about the quality of price ratio and how that really enhances the sales yeah the estimates hitting the sweet spot in the estimates and it was a great show we ended up the show talking about his record california painting even though he's in connecticut it was a Colin Campbell Cooper for over 500k. Pretty nice. Well, we hope you enjoy the show, and thanks for listening. Thanks. Enjoy. Hello, everyone. We're glad you found us, and welcome to our podcast at antiqueauctionforum.com. We hope you find this show entertaining and informative. Okay, so I have Gene Shannon on the line in Connecticut. How are you doing, Gene? I'm doing fine, Martin. Thank you. Great, great. Thank you for joining us today. I hope it'll be enjoyable. Yeah. It sounds like you've been having a little fun lately. Yes, we have. We just had a record auction for our auction company uh, in our, our recent sale. Um, we grossed over $5 million. Excellent. Wow. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. The economy is recovering nicely, I think, uh, although there are pockets uh, that haven't t- totally recovered yet. The, the high-quality items uh, are in great demand. You know, it's like, it's like a broken record. Um, I, I hear the same thing over and over again all the time. It's the, the middle and the lower-end market that is pretty tricky, but the higher-end, that's where the people are in, actually investing in. Yeah, the important thing at auction is I always look at the price-quality ratio. Mm -hmm. And if they're not lined up exactly, then it doesn't sell. So if you overprice it or it's under-quality or any combination of those two, it doesn't sell. It's sort of pretty simple. If you overprice something that's that's nice, it's just not going to sell. But if you put the price uh, where it ought to be, it will sell. trick of the auctioneer is to match the price-quality ratio. Yeah. Now, I've, I've uh, talked about this a couple of times in uh, my podcast, I believe, and I have written a blog about it as well, is when you overprice something, even if it starts at a lower price, the people do not... You lose a, a great amount of interest in bidders, and the people that will get involved and drive it up to the price you might have it at, you know? Um, well, a high price usually means no hands in the air in, in mm-hmm. overpriced estimate. Yeah. Uh, it just scares them off. But a moderate estimate is enticing and gets more people in on the bidding. Even if they're going to bid too low, uh, they still get in on the bidding, and you create an energy in the auction room by having that many bidders with hands in the air or that many 
phone people with their cards in the air. That's right. So starts the frenzy. Yeah, it starts the frenzy. You know, you can't always do it the way you want it, but uh, if you, uh, for instance, we had a collection of an organization in Washington that was mostly pop art, and they needed to liquidate uh, immediately. Mm-hmm. And so we were able to price these um, much lower than normally, and they brought five times estimate in most wow. cases, if not more. Uh, so that was a perfect example of uh, a buyer frenzy. Uh, some items we had twenty telephones, wow, on about eight or nine items. So that's amazing. Uh, you pay the price by having too many telephones because <laughs> some people think they can buy it for for reasonable, but they don't know what's going to happen in reality for these rare items. Yeah. yeah. Now, Gene, other than the price quality ratio and getting that lined up. What other factors do you think contributed to the uh, high record sale? Well, um, going back to the classical part of the sale, which was actually 3.8 million um, ish, and um, basically, the, again, it's the best quality that we can find at a price that is moderate enough to promote interest, and we were lucky enough to have items that were able to price at enticing but fair estimates. Mm -hmm. And then again, that also caused uh, a lot of bidding. Um, We sold a painting by Louis Remy Mignot at three to five hundred thousand, which you know was not really either high or low; it was in the middle, and it sold for just over five hundred thousand in the end. So, but you know, we didn't push it too high. You know, the low estimate was 300 and the bidders thought that was a a good platform to start with. Hmm. And, um, that's how we got to where we wanted to go. Hmm. Great. In uh, the same with the Gifford we had, we priced it at, uh, say, um, eighty to 100000 Hmm. And we had a lot of competition and sold for 204000 I love Gifford Paintings. Oh, he's yeah. a great artist. He's really, he's just really, he's, he's number three, basically. Thomas Cole, mm-hmm. Frederick Church, and S.R. Gifford, um, as I see it, as far as o- overall quality. Yeah, yeah. And, of course, he traveled. The painting that we sold was one that he he uh, painted uh, after he was with Church in Ecuador. And, uh, oh, Made sketches, so this is of the of the jungle, basically in Ecuador, with a building and some you know traveling peasants, and uh, it looked like a Frederick Church. Uh-huh. So if you say, well, how much would this painting be if it was by Church? You'd be talking five or ten million. Yeah, so right. Buy it for five hundred thousand. You know, from the man who was with him on that whole trip. Uh, yeah, it's really not a bad price when you come down to it, and. It was purchased by a major American museum, which was oh, nice, heartwarming for us here. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and always good to see those museums that want our uh, our items. Yeah. Yeah. Before we move out of this uh, topic, I just wanted to throw an example um, to our listeners if they didn't hear a podcast a while back. Um, Darren Julian does. Hollywood memorabilia, and I talked with him several months ago, 
and he had an estimate on a basketball that was signed Michael Jordan and Michael Jackson of four to six hundred dollars um, of what he thought it would you know literally would sell for, and it brought three hundred sixty thousand dollars. Well, talk about a bidding frenzy. It's probably a case of two people out of control. Uh, well put. What didn't we know about that basketball? <laughs> yeah. I, I think I think it might have been the only one they signed together, or there might have been two or something like that. But uh, yeah, I mean, a lot of times people, when it comes to things like that, people bid on emotion more than anything else. You know? Yeah. Well, they also happen to have a lot of money in the bank too. <laughs> yeah. A lot of emotion and a lot of money. Well, the underbidder didn't necessarily have to. <laughs> but always need the underbidders. They're they're very they're just as important. As the winning bidder. Yes. And uh, I don't know about you, but during an auction, a lot of times I will thank the underbidder. You know, um, thank you for your bidding, you know, type yep. of thing. Oh, absolutely. You know, we do that often. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, so can you just set the stage of what your auctions are like? Are they well attended or is it a lot of Internet and uh, uh, phone bidding? Well, you know, we opened this company in 1997. And... At the time, we were auctioning in Greenwich, Connecticut, in mm, a nice large area. venue, mm-hmm. and we auctioned there for about 12 years. And the crowd started; we would get 225 people on the average for the first three years. And at the same time, we started to get into, you know, you know, 2,000. And the phones grew exponentially, and the crowds have shrunk exponentially Mm -hmm. so rather than have 200 people in the audience now we usually have 80 Mm -hmm. and but we have 20 live telephone lines one live internet bitter line and um, uh, so the the crowds aren't really necessary they've been coming to preview here anyhow for all these years yeah. And they'd rather go home and bid by phone. They don't have to be, be here twice. Right. Now, uh, what is your Internet? You're, you're an art fact, is that right? We're an art fact, yes. And how is your Internet uh, participation? Um, it has not been tremendously high. Mm-hmm. Um, probably more underbidders than buyers. And I don't think we've gone over 200000 in an auction that brings you know, 3 to $4 million. Mm-hmm. Uh, this time we were so crowded with telephone requests that we we steered a lot of buyers of the pop art into yeah. the internet, and they're a younger group of people, and they're more acclimated to bidding on the internet. Sure. And so we sold half a million on the internet, and when I looked wow. at it, they were all the pop art modern pieces from the one collection in Washington. Yeah, I would none like... of our other good souls on the internet. I'm wow. not sure about the underbidding, but uh, you know we feel we have to be there because it's the future. Can you tell us how you got into the business? Well, I've been a dealer in art for 35 years. Um, prior to that, I was a dealer in period furniture, American furniture, and I sort of was very interested in art. And uh, I became less interested in the furniture, so I did a career change. Smart move. All by myself. 
and I sort of ate from one occupation while I learned the other occupation. <laughs> and you never learn quicker than when you basically eat from what you do. Either eat or don't eat. Yeah. From what you do. So the learning curve is very high. And every time I sold a painting, I bought a book. I have 4,000 books. Wow. Oh, my goodness. Now, and, uh, and times, the times got better. I bought more than one book every time I sold a painting. Mm -hmm. So we have a great reference library here, which is sort of our, our pride. Now, do you have, uh, do you use actual um, old auction catalogs as well? Yes, I have catalogs for the major auction houses going back to 1970. Yeah. So, um, and obviously we use databases mm -hmm. uh, as well, but the actual auction catalog will often offer you other information. That's that right. It isn't on the database, like provenance and right. um, exhibitions and things that they don't pick up on Artnet or Asgard. Yeah. So yeah. they're always handy when you find some information you can add to the catalog. And you opened the auction house with your wife. Um, yes, my wife is my partner mm -hmm. in business. Uh, and you also work with your daughter. How does that, um, how is it working with your family? <laughs> <laughs> it's a very, very difficult thing. Uh, actually, my wife has retired three years ago mm. from our business. And our did, you, daughter, did you retire her or did you No, retire? no, no. She <laughs> warmed us up. You know, uh, when I opened this, auction house. She said, fine, you can open it, but I'm not going to do it with you. <laughs> so I finally got her to do a one-year contract, which she renewed about 11 times. <laughs> and then she finally said, enough is enough. And uh, uh, But she, she's very happy in retirement. And our daughter, you know, related to the art business since she was 12. I won't tell you how old she is now, but she's definitely a lady. And um, uh, she's fabulous in the business. She's been working with us full-time now for about 11 years. Wow. And she's the heir apparent, although our dealers never retire, as you know. Mm. <laughs> we just fade away, I guess, but uh, I'll always work in the business. I would like a little more time off eventually to yeah. for golf, etc. But uh, <laughs> it's, it's very addictive being in this business. Uh, I bill myself as an urban archaeologist. <laughs> I mean, you know, nothing like finding something like the oh, Mignot or absolutely. the Giffords that have been lost in, in history. Yeah, it's, it's very exciting. Recorded, you know, mm. and the first time ever, it's like an unveiling in a, a cave somewhere. Yeah. And, um, I always think of my friend, uh, good friend up north of you, John McGinnis, mm -hmm. um, when he found the Martin Johnson heat in, yep. in an attic all covered in soot. You know, that brought a million dollars. That, that, yeah. That's pretty exciting that something like that happens. We, we sold a painting for a secretary who was retiring, and it was a Twachman. Oh, yeah, it was nice. It like $30,000, and we sold it for over 500000 Wow. She almost passed out and started crying. <laughs> and, uh, but she was just an average, you know, middle-class person, so it's nice to see when that happens, and I've got plenty of stories that you don't need to here that are comparable to that one. Yeah, that's a, it's always exciting to hear things like that. Yeah, You always want it to happen to you, though, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you get a little piece of it when you're in the business. Which yeah, is... it's, it's a thrill. It, 
really is the thrill of life, something <laughs> happen like that. And of course, anything really fresh and rare is what they're all lined up to buy. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about pop art, though, because what I'm hearing from a lot of people is that it's a, it's a really high up and coming market, real strong right now. So what were some of the examples of the pieces that you had? Well, we had a screen print by Lichtenstein, mm-hmm. and um, the very popular one is from an edition of 200, and uh, it's a very popular print. We sold it for $120,000. Wow. And uh, a lot of it has to do with color retention when you're working with, with all prints. Mm-hmm. All prints are slightly light struck. Uh, ours was almost full color. Um, I talked to a man who had paid two hundred thousand dollars for one of the same uh, prints, and his had had never been framed. It was in a folio its entire wow. life. So his was absolutely the way it came off the press. Therefore, the premium was uh, higher to buy it. So uh, sure, all kinds of nuances that. The average person doesn't know about screen prints. The other things we had that were exciting, we had a collection of 10 works by Gerald Lang, who was England's first pop art artist of consequence. And this entire collection uh, was donated to this organization by John and Kamiko Powers. And um, they were the pioneer patrons of pop art. They supported Warhol and Lichtenstein and many, many other artists of the period. And this was all donated by them in the 60s. So mm-hmm. they had the most important collection of pop art in the country. Wow. And I think that the wife still maintains a large you know, collection of it. So the Powers cachet helped a lot with this auction. Because, like I said, they are—they were instrumental, and they're like you know, god and goddess of pop art. Mm. And they hadn't been moved from this organization since. They've been loaned out for shows here and there, but so they have been seen, but they haven't been offered for sale. And this was the first time ever. Mm. So, uh, and there were great works by by Lang as well. And we also had uh, Dark Angelo, who does a lot of artwork of. Uh, you know, roads and stripes in the roads and actual car mirrors that were hmm. mounted on the top of the frames or inside the uh, artwork. Really? And, uh, huh. I heard he was so poor that that's why he used mirrors because he could buy those for 50 cents each from a junkyard. <laughs> huh. And, uh, you know, you know, make his constructions and add them to the tops of uh, canvases. So. Now, is he, still, is he still alive? No, he passed away in 99. Uh, you know, Lang is still alive. Yep. Gerald Lang. Mm-hmm. He's in England still. And, uh, but he came here in the, the period of early 60s. And he studied under Robert Indiana and worked with Lichtenstein, who was also a pointillistic style painter. And that's mm-hmm. what, you know, Lang became in, in that period. The thing is, both, just one comment that both Warhol and Lichtenstein felt that their screen prints were as good and as important as their paintings. Really? Because there's a lot, 
an artist working with a screen printer, there's so much to do. Oh, sure, that's right. They're laying colors on, the yeah. intensity of color, and so they were basically handled. These were pulled basically by the artist or, you know, with the artist. It almost seems like um, I watched um, a video on screen printing because I just wanted to understand how it worked. It almost looks like more work than actual painting. It is more work than painting, absolutely. And uh, but back at that time, you know, they were selling these things for a hundred or two hundred dollars, and uh, yeah, it was a lot of money then. Yeah, I graduated from college and I went into a corporate job, and I'll tell you, I could have afforded uh, too many of those in the sixties. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, in the sixties, that was a lot of money for sure. I mean, when you're talking uh, houses being $15,000, you know. Yeah, I know. Let's see. Unfortunately, I remember that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Fortun now, what was uh, your favorite piece that has passed by the auction? If you basically could have bid on anything, what would it what well, could have been? Okay, let's take this auction because I don't know how far back my memory goes. Uh, so, I mean, actually, we're offered 3,000 pieces of art for every sale, and we wow. take, about, take about 250. Mm -hmm. So a lot of art passes before our eyes, and uh, unfortunately, a lot of it's not that good. Yeah. So we're in the business of rejection. We realize that, you know, the gong went off in my head one day. We're in the business of you know, rejection. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we practice doing it as well as we can. You have to leave the people with their self-worth, and you gracefully decline as much as you can. Uh, and if you can offer them advice as to where to go, this yeah. goes a long way, because all of a sudden yes. their brother-in-law or their Aunt Harriet has something, and if they've been, you know, you know treated correctly, then we get the referral. Now, I forgot the question that we started this whole thing with. I scrambled <laughs> well, off into 3,000. Oh, yes. Uh, was there a piece that you fell in love with? piece that, that I fell in love the with. The one that got away. Uh, well, I don't bid in my own auction. Um, right, but if you really, had the opportunity yeah, to bid. Yeah, this last sale, we had a, a painting of by Charles Hopkinson. He's a Massachusetts Impressionist um, portraitist. And he had his daughter in the doorway of his home in Manchester, Mass. And she was holding a blue hat, and there was a cat at her feet, a white cat. And she's in a white dress. Mm -hmm. And it was large and in a beautiful frame. And it sold for $108,000. Wow. And it was just it was probably a bargain. And yeah. Hopkinson's not extremely well-known. He is well-known. But it was a masterpiece. It was painted like a Cecilia bow. Mm. Uh, that one, if I, if it walked into me and I, you know, could have afforded it, um, I definitely would have bought it and hung it in my home. What about your cover lot? What was that? Oh, that was a beautiful painting by Titcomb, Mary Bradish Titcomb. She mm. doesn't come around very much at all. She's a Boston School painter. She looks like Boston School. It almost looked like a tarbell or something. Exactly. Well, yeah. she worked. She had a, a, a studio at the Fenway in Boston, which was occupied by many, many Boston artists. And uh, uh, she happened to stop by Old Lyme one time, and that's where this you know, particular painting was painted. And Old Lyme, Connecticut. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. School was, and uh, so I don't know. It just 
Rule number one in buying art is you really gotta like it. <laughs> okay. There's yeah. two other rules that I won't go into, but basically, rule number one: buying a painting is like getting married. It's easy to do. Yeah. <laughs> very hard to reverse quickly. <laughs> Unless you have a real bargain, uh, uh, but I don't know how that would transfer over to a, a, a wife. <laughs> well, we have husbands and wife that go at it, and I walk away from them. And as soon as I can see what's going to happen, I leave the room because I don't need to rec- get caught between a husband and wife. Oh, you mean they're debating whether to buy a painting or not? Oh, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Sometimes it gets uh, somewhat loud and intense, so I stay away from danger. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. So, um, who are your buyers these days? Is it um, is it mostly the United States? Uh, no, we do a lot with Europe. Uh, I don't have the stats with this auction, but in our October auction, we had bidders from eighteen countries. Wow! And nice. Forty-two states. Uh huh. So the the internet by allowing our our website to be in. Artifact to be and all the other databases that pick up our uh, our works. Um, it has has leveled the playing field mm-hmm. so that it's all transparent now. And if you're looking for Harry Jones and all these databases, will notify you when one is coming up sure. or why. So you know nobody misses the artist they wanted. So a lot of dealers in New York think that we get more in many cases for our paintings than they do in New York for comparables. I want to talk to you a little bit about something that's probably a little controversial. Um, I actually worked for the company at one time, and that's um, companies like Asgard. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of times what I'm hearing from dealers and uh, gallery owners and things like that, um, they don't want to buy anything that's at an auction on Asgard. What, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I... I uh Obviously, having been a dealer, um, I can understand that it's so, you know, transparent mm-hmm. that, you know, clients look up the price they paid in auction and they want to give them 10% profit. Mm-hmm. And it causes a lot of problems. Um, so in the past, a dealer would buy something and then they could take it back and clean it and frame it. They had to put in some value. That's right. It. And they could charge double or triple mm-hmm. in a... You know, a major gallery kind of situation. And they can't do it anymore. Anything that's been up to auction in recent times, uh, it's all transparent again. So I can understand why they don't want to buy at auction. Mm -hmm. And And then I'll tell you another situation. I have a friend on the East Coast that bought a California painting at a very small auction that came up on Asgard the day before the auction happened, and he got a real, real bargain on it, and it was... uh, about one-third or one-quarter of what the painting normally sells for. He shipped it out to me here in California, asked me to put it to an auction, which I did. And, of course, the auction gallery um, uh, art department saw that it came up on Askart, and I told them the story. Yeah, it was a really good bargain. And only sold for $100 more than um, what it sold for originally, and it was definitely a painting worth three or four times the amount. But it had that stigma of uh, the low price on it, which I think really... There's two schools of thought to that. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a friend who's a, a you know prominent dealer in American paintings, and 
he still buys at auction, and he still buys unsold paintings at auction. And basically, you know, people ask him about it, and he said, well, I have it, and you don't. <laughs> and it's really good. I like that. Okay, now let's talk, you mm -hmm. know. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I, I think that dealers cut better deals now because of the uh, databases. Mm -hmm. And um, But um, I don't think there's people going for five times the money. That they paid at auction. You, said, you mentioned that there's two schools of thought, and one of them is I have it and you don't. Oh, well, that was one. And uh, well, basically, if the quality is really high and it doesn't matter as much, but it does limit mm -hmm. the dealer's profit to a degree. Mm -hmm. The other school of thought is this is not going to go away. Mm -hmm. Um, and even some of the smaller auction houses sure. want to get their paintings listed on AskArt, ArtNet, etc. for, you know, prestige. And it also, if you have some good prices, sometimes it helps you acquire paintings by the same artist that you achieved high prices for. Mm. Mm -hmm. So um, from our point of view, it's, it's a boon. And to the retail dealer, it's a bane. <laughs> yeah, you know it's funny. Um, when I worked for Askart, um, I was um, one of the one of the things I would do is try to solicit people that I knew in the business. And a dealer that I'm sure you know very well. I'm not going to mention his name. <laughs> I called him in Massachusetts, and uh, he was real happy to hear from me. And you know how's things going? And I told him I work for Askart, <laughs> and uh, he said Askart has ruined my life. <laughs> <laughs> That was his school of thought. <laughs> right. right. Well, it's, they're not happy about it, but you have to learn how to survive. Things change in this business. They I've sure do. Long enough to have seen drastic changes. Um, mm. You have to adapt. Mm -hmm. That's you right. You have to adapt or you have to get out of the business. That's right. Yeah. And actually, owning an auction company is my adaptation to what I, I saw happening. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as a private dealer, and I was I was an auction auction placement uh, with my own goods, and I was a wholesale dealer. And in 1991, both occupations went away mm. uh, at the tail end of that recession. Mm -hmm. and, uh, auctions couldn't get any kind of good prices, and the wholesale stopped. I remember all that. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that was a little scary, and we had to had to change our tune then and we went partners with our retail friends around the country and uh, either supplied the money the knowledge or the painting or or both and that you know made a good living but it was sort of boring mm -hmm. and, uh, it was really i mean uh you know you get a call oh, i you know i sold this for a large amount of money oh it's very nice you know thanks but there's no thrill in it you know yeah. the thrill is in the buying yeah the thrill is in the buying yeah so uh so that went for a while, and I've always thought about being in the auction business, having been involved heavily as a consigner. Mm -hmm. Of course, not knowing what it really took to be in the auction business. Yeah, it's a lot of work, isn't uh, it? Yeah, if you want to work, well, the first few years, we worked 80 hours a week. Yes, that's right. Or you can work, uh, I've said this to people that don't understand, um, you can work absolutely as much as you want to. You know, if you want to be working till midnight every night, it's absolutely no problem to do that. Right. No, you know, my desk is never empty. Yeah. <laughs> and the cataloging today is so intense with the online and the details that you have to 
provide. And you also put out a hard catalog, is that right? Yes, we put out a catalog that's 180 pages. Mm-hmm. And one thing that we specialize in is um, writing essays for important works. Mm. Um, I have a, uh, on staff, I have a, a very, you know, you know, literate researcher who, who researches everything half to death and then is a fabulous writer. So um, often, often how we get consignments is we have to go up head and head with the big boys, head on head rather. Sure. And, uh, you know, what do we offer that they don't? Mm-hmm. Because you've got to state your case. You've got to, yes. You have to compete. You know, they've been around since 1744. Yeah. Well, I can't compete with that. <laughs> <laughs> but what we do do is that for a good painting is that we offer them a double-page spread in the catalog with an academic essay. Mm-hmm. And they're not going to get that in New York. Well, you not know, unless they have a $8 million painting or something. Right. And but there's... for a $100,000 painting, we'll give them that. They'll have a fabulous essay which is also on the Internet, our website, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And so that's something that we can compete with. Yeah. And the other thing that we can you know, compete with against the larger auction houses is that we do an eight-page color brochure showing 24 paintings, and it goes to our personal list of 17,000-plus uh, clients. Mm around the country so if we put you know your painting as part of the deal into that you know for sure it's going to get a lot more coverage than anywhere else right mm-hmm. and um so that is also a deal closer for us sometimes well the couple- so, and there's a lot of other things that are tangible or intangible that we offer that the uh, you know metropolitan people do not offer yeah well there, there's uh there's also there's a lot more Ten to twenty and thirty thousand dollar paintings, and there is eight million dollar paintings, and a lot of those paintings. Uh, I know um, I recently contacted um, uh, one of the big auction houses and said I have this painting, and you know it's it was roughly a oh six to eight thousand dollar painting, and they said no um, for single uh, for single consignments it has to be ten thousand or more. So there's a lot of pieces that are under ten thousand that you can uh, actually do pretty well with. Yeah, there are, uh, pretty much we know what's going to sell. I mean, there's been changes in a lot of our markets. As we discussed, there's certain areas of our market that took a bigger hit than others. And so a piece that, or a school that was going, you know, at full tilt in 06 is now maybe running at half speed. Mm Mm-hmm. So we're very careful if we choose from, from areas, from schools that have been hit hard. So we, we're happy to run, you know, usually we try to get things over 5,000. Mm-hmm. Um, and we will take things uh, lesser if we feel they can run. So I'll take in a sure. 5,000 if I think that it could bring seven or eight because it, it, adds, it adds to the action in the auction. And we have younger collectors that, you know, can't afford 10,000. But you want to get them in. That's right. Buying, and then they'll eventually trade up and trade up as they get used to it. So We're just about running out of time here, but let me just ask you something, because I know that your company sold a California painting that um, I've actually handled a number of times, a Colin Campbell Cooper, for an amazing price. Um, what that was that, that was a Santa Barbara painting, was it? Yes, it was. Um, and it was painted 
uh, oh dear, I just lost it where it was painted. It was it was a you know major hotel, mm -hmm. Orientalist style, and I'm, I'm I'm losing it. But it was a major Cooper. It came out of a private collection the man had inherited a long time ago. Had no real idea of the value. He was in the Midwest, and uh, we, it took two months to get it. You know the deal on the table, and you know we had a truck pick it up, and uh, mm -hmm. and we got obviously very fine price. I think it was almost half a million, if I if I remember correctly. And isn't uh, his record like his record before that really extremely different than that? Well, I believe it was a world record, and I don't think he had much over 250, if I remember correctly, at the time. This was just a very important painting when they just come out of the woodwork, and it was large, and it had all the bells and whistles that you needed. Uh, and so it didn't go to an institution. It went to a, a prominent private collector. Nice. About 90% of our clients are, are private collectors. Wow. And that's yeah. how we've always geared. We're sort of... A, a hybrid between an auction house and a retail gallery because we give the services that people get from you know retail galleries as well. Mm -hmm. We help with framing, we help with cleaning. Really, that's nice. A lot of hands. Yeah. Plus, we take no profit on that. Whatever we pay, yeah, client pays because we're not in, in that business. Right. So, um, so we do. We really want to help them. We put ourselves on the other side of the desk. Mm-hmm. Where we have been for many years, yeah. uh -huh. Uh -huh. <laughs> and how would I like to be treated? You ask those, ask yourself those questions, and uh, and things fall into place. Sure, sure. Gene, what's your uh, website? Uh, the website is shannonsplural.com. Nice and easy. Nice and easy. Yeah. And about how many auctions do you have a year? We only run two auctions a year because we can't get the quality. Mm -hmm. And we find it really doesn't pay to run uh, lesser auctions. Yes. It costs just as much to sell a $4,000 painting as it does to sell a $400,000 painting. Right. And you're in Milford, is it? We're in Milford, Connecticut, which is in between New Haven and in Bridgeport, Connecticut on I-95. Hmm. Mm-hmm. We're an hour out of Manhattan. Great. Okay, so thank you so much for talking to us today. It was very informative. Okay, well, thank you both very much. Thank you. All right, so this is Martin Willis with the Lima Deedler and Gene Shannon, and we're signing off. always appreciate our listeners, so feel free to email us with any ideas, questions, or suggestions to info at antiqueauctionforum.com. We do incur several expenses for this show. It is a free show. However, if you wish to donate, we do have a PayPal button at the bottom of our webpage. If you'd like to help us out for free, Please tell a friend about us or rate and leave us a review on iTunes or any other podcast websites that we belong to. If you're planning on purchasing something through Amazon, please use our Amazon search engine located at the bottom right-hand corner of our webpage. It won't cost you a penny more, and we may get a few dollars to help us out. As always, we thank you for listening.